Welcome to What the F is Going On in Latin America and the Caribbean, a popular resistance broadcast of hot news out of the region. In partnership with Black Alliance for Peace, Haiti America's team, Code Pink, Common Frontiers, Council on Hemispheric Affairs, Friends of Latin America, Interreligious Task Force on Central America, Massachusetts Peace Action and Task Force on the Americas. We broadcast Thursdays at 4.30 p.m. Pacific, 7.30 p.m. Eastern, right here on YouTube Live, including channels for The Convo Couch, Popular Resistance, and Code Pink. Today, we're, this is a special holiday broadcast on Friday, December 30th. Watch for us next week on Thursday again. Post-broadcast recordings can be found at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Telegram, RadIndieMedia.com, and now under podcasts at popularresistance.org. Today's episode, Saab Oral Agreement, focuses on legitimacy of the Maduro government. And our guest, our returning guest for all of you, you'll recognize him, is... Um, author, Latin, uh, labor attorney, human, activ human rights activist, and great friend, I was gonna say Latin American activist, solidarity partner in crime with me, um, Dan Kabalik. And Dan is also um, with Council um, on Hemispheric Affairs, which is one of our broadcast partners. So welcome, Dan, always great to have a conversation with you. Thank you, Terry, good to be here. So let me, uh, let me give all of you a quick background um, as to what our conversation is going to be based on today. Um, and just so all of you know, there has been a few updates in the last couple of days. So we've got a lot to talk about. So here we go. On December 20, in the U.S. District Court of Southern Florida, Judge Robert N. Scola heard oral arguments on Alex Saab's motion to dismiss the case against him. The factual issue for the court to decide was, quote, and these are Dan's words, all of you, whether Mr. Saab was a special envoy from Venezuela to Iran, traveling on a mission when he was detained in Cape Verde and extradited to the United States and therefore entitled to diplomatic immunity, unquote. Dan was present for the hearing and will discuss in detail the hearing results and what has ensued since December 20th. Should also let all of you know uh, that this program has been following the case of Alex Saab since his detainment in Cabo Verde, 12 June uh, 2020. Today is our third episode focusing on this case, and I will include in the program notes links to uh, a couple of Dan's articles that we're going to talk about today, and also the two prior WTF episodes that focused on the Saab case. So Dan, welcome. We've got a lot to talk about today. Yes. It's a very rich case. Well, so maybe for the audience, it might be um, good to just give a quick recap of who Alex Saab is and what happened in June of 2020 that has led to, uh, to the judge ruling he does not have diplomatic immunity. This has been going on for two plus years. Yeah, so Alex Saab is an interesting guy, he's an interesting background. Uh, he's actually uh, Middle Eastern by birth. He's half Palestinian. His dad was Palestinian and his mother was Lebanese. And his father was a Palestinian businessman who moved the family to Colombia, South America to do business, which is where uh, Saab grew up. Now, this may sound strange to people, but it's not. They moved to Barranquilla, I believe, either Barranquilla or Santa Marta, anyway, on the Caribbean coast. There's a lot of... Uh, 
uh, uh, people of Arab descent there and also of Jewish descent. Um, during World War II, people, uh, Jews fled to Colombia. So it's a very, anyway, interesting uh, demographic, demographic um, uh, fact about, about Colombia. In any case, so Saab himself became a, a Colombian businessman as well and then started doing business with Venezuela. And in the course of his business dealings, he started doing some um, uh, business around the housing projects um, of the Chavez Maduro governments, as well as uh, helping get food for the food program known as the CLAP. Um, and it's and the some CLAP is a direct result of U.S. sanctions against Venezuela. That's correct. Be able to import uh, foods, food products. And yeah, and Saab became very adept at, at, at navigating um, U.S. sanctions to get food to Venezuela, to get building supplies to Venezuela, to get oil to Venezuela. And at some point in 2018, he is appointed by the Venezuelan foreign ministry as a special envoy to uh, officially represent Venezuela with other governments like the government of Iran, but also Russia, again, in pursuit of, of oil, food, medicines, building supplies for Venezuela. And in the course of his diplomatic work, he went to Russia once and he went to Iran one, twice to procure, um, again, these food, medicine, oil for Venezuela. Uh, they would actually, Venezuela would pay for the these supplies in gold. And um, Saab actually used his own plane to carry the gold to, the, to Iran and to bring the supplies back. Um, and so then the Venezuelans are using gold to transact for financial transactions because they have no access to the global financial market. They and they cannot use U.S. dollars, nor right. can they use the swift overnight banking system. Right. So they so, and they also sit on a lot of gold. Their nation has a lot of gold under it. So he used his own plane to bring this gold, uh, which is kind of incredible, and. and um, so then he is going to make a third trip to Iran for the same purpose at this point to just negotiate another deal for food and medicine for Venezuela. And at the hearing, one of the people who testified was uh, Saab's security guard, um, who, by the way, was provided by the government for him because he was a diplomat who went to Miraflores, the presidential palace of Nicolas Maduro, before the trip, the, this last attempted trip to Iran. And the security guard testified that he was handed at that meeting some diplomatic pouches, which included correspondence from Nicolas Maduro and the president and Delcy Rodriguez, the vice president to different officials in Iran, the letter from Maduro was actually to the supreme leader 
Um, and the security guard testified that when he escorted Saab to his plane, he, you know, took note of the items he was carrying. And, and again, those included these letters in sealed diplomatic pouches. Saab then flies towards Iran, but he has to refuel on the way. And he wanted to refuel in the west coast of Africa in Senegal or Morocco, but he I lost your audio. I'm not sure we lost your audio. Hello? Can yeah, you hear there me? you are. Okay. okay. When did I cut yes. off? At there what point are. did I cut off? So he wanted, so he's flying. This is his third trip to Iran. He has to refuel on his way from Venezuela to Tehran, and he wants to stop in Senegal. Or Morocco. He or wants Morocco. Yeah, so, so Saab wants to stop either in Morocco or Senegal on the west coast of Africa. He's denied the right to do that, and it's thought because the U.S. pressured those countries, don't let him land. So that forced him to land in Cabo Verde, which was a Portuguese colony, and it's a, a group of, it's a nation that is made up of, a, of uh, several islands off the coast of West Africa. So he lands in Cabo Verde. His plan is to stay on the plane and just refuel on the runway and keep going. But when he lands, uh, the Cabo Verde officials are there prepared to arrest him. They do arrest him under a request by the United States. The U.S. claimed that there was an Interpol notice for his arrest, but turns out that that notice was not made or, uh, until about a day later after his arrest. But the U.S. did ask Cabo Verde to arrest him. He was arrested and he was held on Cabo Verde uh, for over a year, uh, again, at the request of the United States. Now, one interesting thing that happened at the hearing was as follows. So the prosecution has been claiming for some time, they basically would claim that all the facts the defense is saying aren't true, all the facts that make up their claim he's a diplomat. One of the things they claim was not true was the existence of these letters, the diplomatic letters that I mentioned. They said those weren't created till after the fact. They were fabricated after the fact to try to prove he was a diplomat when he wasn't, okay. So a very interesting thing at the hearing was the defense brought a young lawyer from Cabo Verde to Miami who testified that he went to see Saab in prison in Cabo Verde, discovered that contrary to the policy of the Cabo Verde Corrections Department, he was never given an, uh, an option as to who to give his property to when he was arrested. So all the property remained in the possession of the prison officials. So the lawyer said, well, Mr. Saab, why don't you, if you want, I will take those in, into my possession 
and take care of them, but you have to sign this notice saying, I give you the right to take possession of my goods. And so he does that. The young lawyer presents that to the prison officials. He takes Saab's possessions, which included one big suitcase and a smaller suitcase. He takes those home. And then within about 45 minutes, he opens those up. And within the suitcase, he finds these diplomatic letters. In sealed diplomatic pouches, but the seals were broken and the letters were opened. Clearly, someone had looked at these. Now, here's an interesting little little part of this. On the top of the copies of the letters that were presented in evidence and that we saw were some markings. Prosecution presented. No, this was the defense presented. Okay. Okay, sorry. (laughs) No, that's okay. They asked him about these markings at the top, which showed a date. I think the date was June 20th, 2020. I lost your audio again. Stop. We lost your voice again. No, I can't hear you. Sorry. There. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Sorry about that. I don't know. Don't be too animated when you're talking. <laughs> okay. Right. Okay. I will try to be still. Okay. No, it's great. Keep going. Okay. So they ask him, the defense asks him about these markings at the top of all the letters that indicate a date, June 20th, I believe, 2020. I believe that's the date, uh, which was the day he was arrested in Cabo Verde. And next to that was something that showed a JPEG, okay, which suggested that these documents had been photographed on that date and then maybe shown to someone else. Okay. And they asked like the defense. Photographed and sent somewhere, maybe. Well, yes. Or shared, yeah. So the defense says to the lawyer, did, were those markings at the top of those letters? when you saw them and he said no which means the letters the copies of the letters that the lawyer saw did not have those markings at the top they were made uh at some other point and those were the copies by the way those letters with the markings at the top showing they've been copied those had been given by the prosecution to the defense in the course of discovery. The American oh. prosecution, right? right? So what showed most likely is that it was wow. given to the Americans. It was copied and shown to American officials. Yeah. So they From knew. Cabo Verde, where whoever right. saw them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So the Americans and the people in Cabo Verde darn well knew he was a diplomat with diplomatic pouches. Yeah. Wow. And then, of course, the prosecution, I would argue, did not tell the truth. In fact, they lied when they tried to claim, oh, these were created after the fact. No, because this lawyer saw the originals without those markings. Um, The young lawyer. Yeah, at a very within days after Saab had been arrested. Okay. Yeah. 
And then the interesting thing is the prosecution lawyer tries to cross-examine the young lawyer. And, and by the way, he asks some questions at first that have nothing to do really with the letters. He's just trying to impeach the guy. And the defense stands up and objects, says, look, this is beyond the cross of scope. Uh, this is irrelevant. And the judge gets flustered and finally says to the prosecution lawyer, are you going to are you going to challenge We lost your audio. <laughs> I lost you at are you going to challenge? Sorry. No, okay. I don't know why this is happening. Um in any case, um I think I know where I I so um, Are you going to challenge the young lawyer? Right. And, yeah. the, and the defense, or sorry, the prosecution lawyer says, no, we're not going to challenge that. And the judge is like, well, then why are you asking these questions at 6 o'clock p.m.? And the guy just sits down. So it's unrebutted that the lawyer saw these things. So the long and short of it is this. The, the evidence, uncontroverted evidence, shows Saab was a special envoy appointed by the foreign ministry in 2018, by the way, at a time when the U.S. recognized Nicolas Maduro as president. Correct. And that at the time he was seized in Cabo Verde, he was on a diplomatic mission from Venezuela with diplomatic papers going to Iran and that Iran had accepted his mission and him as an envoy. And so the defense's argument was, well, then we satisfy all the elements for him as a, as a special envoy protected by diplomatic immunity. And they cite this case. There's an 11th Circuit case involving a Saudi diplomat under similar circumstances, not identical, but similar. And they say under that precedent, he should be given diplomatic immunity, just like this Saudi was in, in the 11th Circuit. And by the way, he's being held in Miami, which is in the 11th Circuit. So, mm -hmm. so everything looks pretty good as to the law for this guy. But ultimately, the judge rules against the defense and finds he does not have diplomatic immunity. And the opinion's rather, well, it's not terribly long for a, a court opinion, but it's kind of involved. And he goes through a bunch of steps. The first steps he goes through, he says, well, first of all, I find he's not a diplomat because Nicolas Maduro is not the president of Venezuela. The government is illegitimate because the State Department says so. Because he's representing Maduro, um, I find he's not a legitimate diplomat. Okay. But then, of course, we all disagree with that. And of course, the other argument that, 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 you know, defense had was, look, even if you put aside who the proper president is, no one disputes that the foreign ministry is the proper right. diplomatic wing of the Venezuelan government, whatever that is. And that the U.S. Even Whether it's Maduro's foreign ministry or Guaido's foreign ministry, it's still the same. Right. Yeah, Guaido's getting his passport from the same ministry that Saab got. You know, he doesn't yeah, have his yeah, own that's... foreign ministry and all. Mm -hmm. 
But he rejects that or doesn't even want to get to that. But so he goes through his several things where he says, look, we lost you. You froze just a bit. Matt. Okay, on a, yeah. He says, yeah. even if Maduro, let's assume Maduro is president. I don't think he is, but let's assume he is. Just says, uh, still he's not a diplomat because I find he was a temporary diplomat on a temporary mission in transit to his diplomatic destination, which was Iran. And therefore, he finds under the Vienna Convention, which he finds is the v Vienna Convention on Diplomatic Relations, he finds that he does not have transitory protection in a place at Cabo Verde, where he's on his way to a destination, because one, Cabo Verde did not accept him as a diplomat, and neither has the U.S. accepted him as a diplomat. And that's how he distinguishes the Saudi case in the 11th Circuit. He said in the Saudi case, ultimately, after the fact, by the way, after um, the dispute arises with this Saudi official, the U.S. accepts his diplomatic status upon the request of Saudi Arabia. But he said that never happened here. Neither Cabo Verde nor the U.S. accepted his diplomatic status uh, or accepted him as an envoy and therefore I find he does not have to. We lost your audio. Yeah. Hello? Yep. There okay. you are. Okay, where did I where, where did he lose? So he doesn't have diplomatic, the, the Saudi was recognized as having diplomatic status because the United States ultimately, after the fact, recognized it. Whereas in with Alex Saab, the United States nor Cabo Verde, they recognized him as having diplomatic status while he was in transit. Right. Now, first of all, that that is that you know i think there's a huge doubt about all that because we know and this was put in evidence we know from mark esper's book mm. that the u.s was talking about the fact that saab was a diplomat behind the scenes that is they were concerned with his arrest they wanted his arrest but they also said look we may have problems with it because he's a diplomat and this is Mark Esper, the former Secretary of Defense. Right. And he wrote this kind of tell-all book. And he talks yeah. a little bit about the Saab case. And he said people were talking about this and worried about this and recognized he was a diplomat. But the judge doesn't deal with that. You know, again, the problem is the judge defers just entirely to the State Department about what they want in this case and what they think in this case, even though it may not be truly what they ever thought, but in any case. And so, but uh, according to his ruling, the problem I see with his ruling and many do is how do you have diplomatic relations when really in the end, it's up to the con any country that wants to arrest a diplomat, it's up to them to say, oh, I recognize you as a diplomat, regardless of whether your country recognizes you as a diplomat. We're just going to, you know, 
the whole idea behind diplomatic immunity, and this goes back centuries, right? Yeah, right. It's the idea that if I send a diplomat from Rome to Athens and he comes to Athens and he says, you know, hey, the king wants you or the emperor, you know, wants to talk to you about making peace. The whole idea is you shouldn't shoot the guy. Right. He, he should, you know, or because then you never send a diplomat. Right. If you shoot the messenger, no one's going to send you a message. And we don't think that's good. We think it's good for the relations between countries to have messengers like this who have immunity and aren't going to be shot because that you don't like their message. Right. Well, and that's what the letters are for. Correct. Right. The letters are to show the king of Spain has sent me you know, to the emperor of Rome. This is the letter saying I'm supposed to be, that's what those letters are all about. And ambassadors still exchange. They still have to show right. a letter. And you country. should be protected on your way there too, for the same yeah. reason. And right. if you have a diplomatic pouch, that should be inviolate. You should not, no one should be rummaging through it or stealing it or whatever. You should be protected. Unless you want it done to yourself in return. Well, that's the problem. And, and what, you know, in the end, the U.S.'s position on all this is, well, we're strong enough to protect our diplomats. If you take one of our diplomats, we'll just bomb your country, right? right. We're strong enough to just use brute force to protect our diplomats. But we, because we're so strong, we're just going to decide willy-nilly if any country we don't like uh, if their diplomats are bona fide or not, you know, and again, you can't have an international system like that. It won't work and it's not working. I mean, this international exactly. yeah. broken down because of this, because of selective justice, selective application of conventions. Um, led by the United States. What's that? Led by the United States, that narrative. No, yeah, we've done it. it. We did it on purpose. We destroyed right. the international legal system because again, we thought we were above it. We have all the power militarily, economically. And, you know, one of the best examples of this, of course, is the International Criminal Court, which, you know, Bill Clinton helped negotiate the Rome Statute um, of the International Criminal Court. He tried to weaken it as much as possible to, to prevent it from applying to the U.S. He then signed that convention or the Rome Statute but he never got it ratified. And then George W. Bush unsigned it. So the U.S. never became a party to the uh, Rome statute. But of course, it tries to apply it to every other country. You know, right? It's right. going to try to apply it against Russia now. Human rights. Right. For example. Meanwhile, the U.S. doubled down on its own um, lack of acceptance of the Rome statute, the ICC, by passing what's known as the Invasion of the Hague Act which George W. Bush signed into law, which says the U.S. can invade the Hague to rescue any U.S. persons who the ICC wants to prosecute, okay? So that's how insane the U.S.'s position is on international law. We, we have the right to invade the Hague to stop the ICC from prosecuting one of our own, but we're going to make sure other countries are prosecuted by the ICC. Well, this is why the world 
yes. is balking at the U.S. It's like, well, this is absurd, and therefore, you know, and you know, Father Miguel Descoto, who was the foreign minister of Nicaragua and who became the president of the UN General Assembly, he said while he was president, he said when there were debates about the ICC and its application, he said. I believe that the ICC should prosecute no one until it has the right to prosecute everyone. Everyone, yeah. You cannot yeah. have this selective justice system. You cannot have a selective diplomatic system, but that's what's been set up and that's where right. we are. And I think this judge who seemed very smart, uh, seemed fair, at least in the way he handled the hearing, in the end, I think he buckled to pressure from the executive branch of the U.S. government, which again, we have a separation of powers in these countries. And, and it was always recognized that the judicial branch should have the most protection because from being bullied by the, by the executive branch and the legislature, because the judicial branch has no power, right? It has neither the power of the sword that the executive branch has or the purse, which the legislative branch has. So we should be very cautious about allowing it to be influenced and pressured by the other branches. And yet this is an example, I believe, where the court just buckled to the executive branch and basically threw its hands up and said, State Department doesn't recognize Maduro. It didn't recognize this guy as a diplomat, so I'm going to punt. And I'm going to just rule against the defense and they can appeal. And if someone disagrees with me, let, let the appellate court disagree. And by the way, he more or less said that in the oral argument. He kept saying, whatever I do, it's going to be appealed anyway. So, you know, so, so I, it, I don't really have to do anything. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it's sad. He's an older judge, as most judges are. Most, most judges are long in the tooth. And, you know, why not take, you know, why not take a stand and take a chance? I mean, if you're, if you're overturned on appeal, you don't lose your job. It's still a exactly. lifetime. Yeah. But that's where we're at. And it's a really sad situation because I think lurking behind the case, and it felt this way at the hearing and what things that were said, lurking behind the case, again, is this is, you know, the U.S.'s, uh, um, you know, um, ex American judicial reach over judicial reach, but also American exceptionalism that we are the, you know, yeah. we are the the uh, indispensable nation that can do what we want. And when there's countries like Venezuela and Iran that we really don't respect and we don't really treat them as equals, you know, we're just going to do what we want with them. And we're not, we're going to treat their diplomats not like other ones. If this was a case deal, you know, involving France or the UK, th this would have come out so differently. You know, we're not going right. to not recognize their government or not recognize their diplomats because they're fellow white people. You know, I'm sorry, but that's what it comes down to. They're fellow Europeans. Well, also part of what the U.S. defines as the international community. The international community. Yep, I lost you. Yep. Okay, I can hear you now. 
I can okay, hear you. Great. <laughs> I, I couldn't hear you either. So the, the United States defines the unit who composes the international who comprises the international community and the and then within that community the u.s defines the rules-based order and there's a whole lot of countries that are excluded from that including venezuela and iran and nicaragua and cuba and probably china by the end of the day (laughs) all you know there's a very you know i got in this conversation with somebody about uh, is this becoming like an inverse uh, iron curtain? And it's almost like the U.S. is self-isolating. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I'd like to say a couple things about that. Or the okay. West is self-isolating. Yeah. It's probably better. So one, I agree with you on that point. First, I want to say this, that the UN, the basic premise of the UN Charter, and it says it in the UN Charter, which the U.S. helped draft and was one of the original signatories, it says every nation is sovereign and every member of the UN is an equal member, right? It's, you know, no, there's no, there's no hierarchy, right? Every country is, is equal under the UN Charter. So this, this view that we're talking about that the U.S. has for some of these other countries defies the UN Charter, that the U.S. is a member of an help draft. But something you said, I think, is true about this Iron Curtain thing. Even when the so-called Iron Curtain existed, you could freely travel to the Soviet Union, for example, even on an aeroflot Russian aircraft from New York City, say. Uh, I lost your audio. You have to sit still. I still can't hear you. Can you hear me now? Yeah, yes. So back then, if you, especially if you're an American with an American passport, you could pretty much travel anywhere pretty easily. Most people could. And, and by the way, back in biblical times, you know, you have, for example, the, the example of St. Paul, who was Saul, who went from Jerusalem to Damascus, mm-hmm. right, by land. Right presumably on a camel or you walk there or something. You can't do that anymore. You cannot go from Jerusalem to Damascus, Syria by land, and nor can you fly there. It is, it's almost impossible to fly to Damascus. I know this because I've gone to Damascus, and, and for the most part, you have to fly to Lebanon and, and, and drive from Beirut about four hours to Damascus. It's, it's not an easy journey. And we can find many examples of this. You, if you live in Gaza, you can't even leave Gaza, right? right. And, you, and it's very hard, if not impossible, to travel to Gaza anymore, which now is a wall around it. After the sanctions imposed on Russia after February of this year, you cannot fly directly to Russia. Again, this wasn't even true during the Cold War. You could fly directly to Russia. Now you have to go either through Turkey or you fly to Helsinki, Finland. And then even then... Uh, you have to drive into Russia, the train between Helsinki and Russia, which even Lenin used mm. uh, during World War One. You can't use that train. That train's closed now. So I've been saying for a while, and I think you, what you were saying touches on this, the world has gotten bigger. It hasn't gotten smaller. All right. It's gotten bigger. 
And that's true with Venezuela, which is now very hard to fly to from the U.S. because of sanctions. Nicaragua, which has become harder to fly to. Cuba, which is also harder to get to because of sanctions and the embargo. So, yes, the world is, is a, a bigger place, a harder place to navigate now in 2022, almost 2023, than it was, say, 20 years ago or 30 years ago or even again, during the Cold War. And that's a very regrettable and sad fact, but that is the fact. But you have these two, I mean, a lot of people, in particular, a lot of our friends will talk about this multilateral world emerging. And, um, and we truly see that throughout Latin America and the Caribbean and, and the alignment with Venezuela and Iran and Russia and all not just aligning with the West. And that was very clear in the CELAC summit in September of 2021 in Mexico City. But what, um, it's like, um, I forget, I'm not sure what the right word is. You see, I, don't, I, I hesitate to say it's a multilateral world because to me, just as we were talking, this international community, this definition of what the international community is and rules-based order is definitely Western. Europe, Canada, United States, New Zealand, Australia. And it's almost more of a two or a bi, people are gonna laugh when I say a bipolar world. You have the Western, the West as defined by the United States, and then the rest of the world, Russia, China, Iran, India, many countries in Latin America. It's two. It isn't necessarily multi to me as much as it is, you know, a bi, a two. You know, the world is splitting in two again, like the first Cold War. Right, and but even more severe. the Eurasian component, the Asia Pacific component, the non-West component is multipolarity within that component, but the world as a whole is becoming two components. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's true, and the reason for that is that the U.S. wanted to be the unipolar world, right? It wanted to be the only right. superpower, <laughs> and now other countries are emerging, and so and they're joining with each other. So basically, it's the U.S. It's Western European partners, Japan, Australia, against everyone else. That, that's essentially what we're seeing. Right. By the way, I have to also say, because you know we just finished Christmas, and for my Orthodox friends, they're heading into Christmas on January right. 7th. When we talk about the world getting bigger, have you, I'm sure you've seen this meme for Christmas, that if uh, Mary and Joseph had to go from Nazareth to Bethlehem, uh, now they'd have to go through 15 checkpoints. <laughs> and, and the baby would not have been born. Where <laughs> yeah, or the baby would have been born in a checkpoint. <laughs> yeah. And uh, who knows that. what have, would have happened to it and would have had to, had to pass a wall as well. So yeah. I think that's a very important meme. I think that's a very important thing to, to reflect on during the holidays. I mean, this is where the world we live in now. It's not... A, you know, after the collapse of the Soviet Union and the, you know, the U.S., you know, declaring itself the world's only power, you know, they 
the promise of that that the U.S. was making uh, was that it would make a more just and democratic and peaceful world. And it's been anything but that. Right. It's The U.S. has made sure it's yeah. been anything but that. Right. And that's a fact. And that's what we're seeing now. That's why we see the rise of this, as you say, either, either duo polar world or multipolar world is the rest of the world sick of it. Yeah. And they have the ability to build, they have the economic ability and also the will now to, uh, to collaborate right. much. Yeah. Yeah. And it's in that, in that world that's emerging to me is very, very exciting. It is. And it's necessary. It had, again, the U S has lost its right to rule. I mean, yeah. it, 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 you know, I mean, it, yeah. it, it it had the the world. It had the control of the world, and it used it very, very uh, wrongly. You know, by invading other countries, creating tens of millions of refugees through its wars of choice, yeah. and the world has said, "Look, we're done. Bye bye." Yeah. And uh, you're going to see that rejection happening more and more because it's not sustainable. Can we, uh, in our last few minutes, can we just go back real quick? Um, to that case of Alex Saab, because there's a few things I'd like to share with the audience. Um, and I think this is, a, in listening to you speak about what you witnessed in the court last week in Miami, I think this is something really important to reiterate with the audience that Alex Saab was made a special envoy by the Venezuelan president, vice president, foreign ministry in 2018. President Maduro was reelected by the Venezuelan people May of 2018. I don't know if you were there for that. I, uh, I took a delegation. I was there. Yes, yeah, I was there. Okay. Yeah, and I was I was there as well. So just so the audience knows, we were there. It was a democratic. <laughs> he is I was a democratically elected president. I was there for both Maduro elections. Yeah, and you know, and then inauguration day. Inauguration was January of 2019, and it was in February of 2019 that that the Venezuelans or that the U.S. State Department gave the Venezuelans their stand-up president, Juan Guaido. So it's this whole thing of who was president and when, it's really clear under which presidency, under which foreign ministry, the, the, the special instructions were written for Alex Saab. I mean, they weren't written, they were written before the stand-up president. So, or the U.S. appointed president is probably a more appropriate. It, I mean, it's clear. I don't, there's, there's really not even a way. I don't, how do you even argue around that? Except like you said earlier, the prosecution is making up facts as they go along, rewriting history, whatever. That craziness yeah, no, is comes out of Washington, D.C. It's true. It's true. But, oh, I want to say one other thing. There was, a, there is kind of a nice moment in the in the hearing, there is a, 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 a woman who works in the passport office of the foreign- The Venezuelan passport office. Yeah, uh, she was a witness and she testified from Venezuela. Okay. Via video. And she was a very, I really liked her a lot. She was, this by the way- She works in the consular services, is that? Yeah. Yeah. It, and she was clear, uh, clearly a Chavista because when they swore in, she hold, held up her little blue constitution. And, oh. <laughs> 
uh, swore on the Constitution. I mean, when she's asked to swear on the Constitution, but no one, no one held the book in front of her, but she had her own that she held up. Yeah, good for her. But she said a few great things. So first of all, the prosecution tried to trick her by saying, well, you know, um, they, they tried to re- ask her a question about the Guaido government. And she said, well, first of all, I want to say there is not and has never been a Guaido government. <laughs> the duly elected president, is Nicolas Maduro. But the other thing she said, and I think this is probably a good thing to end on to really give people an impression about Alex Saab and what he was doing. When she was asked about Saab, we, she said, at some point she said, well, we in Venezuela are very thankful for Alex Saab for taking the risk he did to get us food and medicine, you know, that that's what he was doing in his diplomatic work. And that was what he was doing. And he saved a lot of lives by what he was doing. Um, And to me, that's what this case is also at its root about the fact that he you know, that's what he was working to do, that he risked his life and liberty to do it. And he's now sitting in jail because he did do it. And he's sitting that, in jail in Miami. Right. We didn't talk, we didn't, we didn't specifically mention his extradition. You meant you did mention he was uh detained in Cabo Verde there uh for a year. And then there's right. that whole argument as to whether he was going to be extradited to the United States or not. And then and, and, yeah, and, and it should be mentioned he was extradited to the U.S., though there is no extradition treaty be- between the U.S. and Cabo Verde. And even though Cabo Verde will find an exception to that, uh, will sometimes extradite someone without an extradition treaty, but only if the requesting country, in this case the U.S., agrees to reciprocate, that is to send someone upon Cabo Verde's request, and the U.S. made it clear, oh, no, we're not ever doing that. So, you know, the legalities here were not recognized under any... No, No, it's the one-way street. Do as we we say, not as we do. So before I let you go, Dan, what's what's next in this case? um, Alex Saab is going to appeal. He will appeal, so we'll see... It'll go to the 11th Circuit, which again ruled in a good way, at least for Saab in the Saudi Arabian case. We'll see if, if they find a way to distinguish that case here. And then if, if it could go to the Supreme Court. But in the meantime, my guess is in the meantime, it will go forward on the merits of the case against Saab. Yeah. And they'll, they'll go to trial on those issues. So the sad thing for Saab is, in any case, what it means by all this is he's going to sit in jail for a lot longer, you know, and I think this is going to be an, a Julian Assange type case where exactly. yeah. they're just going to try the shit out of this guy. Sorry for my French. And they're going to make sure even if he wins, ultimately, he's going to spend many years in prison. And that is a shame and a, and a sad thing because I think he was doing something good for the Venezuelan people and he's going to pay the price for that. Reminds me of this. I was told as a young lawyer, um, Dan, no good D goes unpunished. <laughs> I laugh. It's not funny. I yeah, mean, I'm sometimes you learn that the hard, Alex Saab is learning that the hard way. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. He's stuck. He, you know, he's stuck in a war. 
in an economic, yeah. you know, it's, it's and, a, and he it's, has the key to free himself. And that is, he could just make up a bunch of lies about Maduro and yeah. go on camera and badmouth Maduro. Believe me, they'd let him go, but he won't do it. He's a man yeah. of principle. He's, he has, he's remained loyal, which yeah. is really very, very impressive. Yeah. So I would love to have you come back as this case, you know, progresses as we go, you know, go further. It's been, um, this is the third episode we've done focused on Alex Saab's case. And it, I mean, it's a really, um, it's pretty horrifying actually. Yeah. You know, and he you has know. a family, he has kids. Both of his parents died while he was in Cabo Verde. I mean, there's a human cost to this for him personally and his forest family. And it's very sad. It is very sad. Well, that's the message, isn't it? Yeah. That's the, that's the message to anybody else who may be interested in, in, in helping or in particularly, you know, working around um, U.S. imposed sanctions, war, sanctions, warfare. It has to be called warfare. That's what it is. And yes. So, so we'll have you back as Sounds this progresses. Good, it's always so great to have a conversation with you. I want Me to too, remind Jerry. the audience you've been watching What the F is Going On in Latin America and the Caribbean. We're a popular resistance broadcast and we are live typically uh, on Thursdays, 4.30 p.m. Pacific, 7.30 p.m. Eastern. You can find us on the Convo Couch, Code Pink Action, and Popular Resistance Org YouTube channels. And if you miss us live on YouTube, be sure to catch us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. So, okay, everyone, we'll see you next week. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Peace, everyone. <laughs>